Only Jesus, the only name to remember. Amen? That's what we are preaching. That's what we're talking about as we're going through the Gospel of John. And we've been doing that this year so far. We're going to continue to do that as we continue through the rest of this year as well. With a few little breaks here and there, but we're going to go all the way through John before the end of the year. But we've been looking at this idea of only Jesus and seeing the Savior in a selfie world. It's obvious as we look out across the landscape of our country and even in our commonwealth that we live in a selfie world. Would you agree with that? Amen. That we're always concerned about me, myself, what, what, what is best for me. And even in the church sometimes we can get caught up, if we're not careful, into the same idea of being very self-oriented and very self-centered. When in reality, all of life and everything about us should always point to bringing glory and honor to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to exalt Him. Our lives are to exalt Him. Our lives are to magnify Him. Everything about us points to Jesus Christ. It's not about a name that I'm going to leave or people remembering me when I'm gone, but it's about do they know Jesus because of my life in which I lived on His behalf as exalting Him and magnifying Him. So we've looked at different aspects of who Jesus is from John 1. Today we're going to come, up, come into John chapter 3. But already in John 1 and John 2, we saw that Jesus is the eternal word, that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We see that he is the transformer who turned water into wine, and he is the temple cleanser. And I hope that you came this morning having decluttered your heart and your life uh, to be able to worship the Lord together, and hopefully you were doing that all this week. And we come not with a cheap worship, but rather with an extra extravagant worship because he alone is worthy of our worship. Amen. And so we're going to look today to him as the only begotten son. And we're going to look at this passage scripture that there's one of the verses in this passage scripture in John chapter 3, 1 through 21, that is probably very familiar to you. You probably memorized it at a young age and you know it by heart even today. And that's John three sixteen. But I wonder how often have we quoted the verse, but not really understood or knew, knew the context behind all of what was being said in that passage scripture. And that's what we want to look at as we come to this passage this morning. And what we want to see here is we looked at a little bit of this at the end of last week's message, at the end of chapter 2. When we think about the only begotten Son, who is the Son of God, is that He knows. And we need to know that He knows. Amen? He knows. He knows us. He knows our hearts. He knows all about us. Because He is the only begotten Son of God. So, I'm going to read for us John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. And so in honor and reverence to the word, if you would please stand as I read this passage of scripture for us uh, this morning. The Bible says this in John 3. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and he said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? But Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you that you must be born again. For the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? 
Most assuredly, I say to you that we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and, we, and you do not receive our witness. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one's ascended into heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he, does the truth, but he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they, may, that they have done, been done in God. So let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for the reading of your word this morning. And Lord, we pray that all that we have experienced during this past week, whether that was in our home or in our workplace that has caused us to be distracted and cluttering up our own time with you, Lord, we pray that even now we'd be able to set all of that aside for just a few moments and to hear directly from you today. Lord, we thank you for your apparent presence with us this morning already. Lord, we have sensed that you have been at work in our hearts and our lives. Lord, we pray that you would continue to move even now as we break open the bread of life and hear the word proclaimed from John 3. Lord, I pray that we would be, have eyes to see and ears to hear. And Lord, that you would be glorified and exalted and magnified in that which is about to be spoken. And Lord, that you would use me simply as your vessel to speak truth that you have given from your word. And so, Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth, meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And may you be glorified and may you draw people to yourself for your glory, honor, and praise. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. <clears throat> well, you see in your bulletin the outline for today's message. We're going to follow that along and we're going to look here at this passage of Scripture. And the first thing that we want to see here about the only begotten Son as we're thinking about Jesus and who He is, only Jesus, turning our attention away from ourself and this selfie world and toward the Savior is the thing that we need to know about Jesus is that He knows. But the thing that we're going to see first off is that He heads for the heart. That Jesus heads for the heart. And we see that in chapter 3 here in verses 1 and following for just a couple of verses. When we look at the person that's, being, uh, that's come to Jesus in the night, this man that tells us is a, is a man of the Pharisees and his name Nicodemus, and he's a ruler of the Jews. And so being one of the Pharisees, he's very conservative. Uh, he seeks to live uprightly. He's going to stick to the law. He's, he is a ruler of the Jews, meaning that he's probably in the Sanhedrin and understand that the Sanhedrin is the ruling body of the Jewish people of that day and understand that because of that, that would be compared to maybe him being in our United States Senate or in the Supreme Court. He is a very important, influential man and likely because he is in that statue and in that state, then he's probably very affluent as well. Probably rich, rich got some wealth to him as well. And the Bible tells us in verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night. 
and said to, Je- said to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. He comes to Jesus at night to speak to him, and he gives a compliment to Jesus. He says, hey, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He's not asking a question. He's just simply paying a compliment and, and letting Jesus know, probably because he was in the temple. He probably saw some of what Jesus had done in cleansing the temple, maybe heard as one of these people in verses 23 through 25 up in chapter 2 who saw the signs of what Jesus did, uh, but Jesus didn't commit himself to them because he knew all men. And so Jesus knows what's in the heart, but they, he had seen some of the things that had taken place. And so he comes and he gives a compliment to Jesus. But what does Jesus do? He, G, Nicodemus isn't asking a question, but in verse 3, Jesus answers and says, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus had to have been taken aback by this response that Jesus has given to him because Nicodemus didn't even ask a question. Nicodemus is just coming to him saying, Rabbi, we know that your teacher come from God and no one can do these things unless God is with him. And so what Jesus is doing here is he is simply cutting to the chase. Amen. Amen. He is. And what he's doing is that he is heading for the heart because he is interested in one thing here. And that is the heart of Nicodemus. He's heading for the heart. He cuts to the chase. Jesus is not interested in Nicodemus's fluff and stuff. He is not interested in the applause or the kudos or the nice gestures, but he is interested in one thing in Nicodemus, and that is that he is interested in his heart. Because the Bible here tells us that he knows what's in man. Back in verse chapter 2, again, verse 24, 25, we looked at this at the end of last week. It says, Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. And this really is telling us there's something here as John is writing the gospel inspired by the Holy Spirit, that there's a transition that's taking place here at the end of chapter 2, that from this point forward, especially in the next few narratives, we're going to see that Jesus knows the hearts of people. We see it here in Nicodemus. We're going to see it in chapter 4, the woman at the well. And there'll be others as well that we need to know that Jesus knows the heart. Because he is the only begotten son of God. And as the only begotten son of God, since God knows the heart, the son of God knows the heart. And so what we know here is that God does know the heart because in Jeremiah and the prophets in the Old Testament... The prophet Jeremiah, chapter 20 and verse 12, where he was, uh, the people were out to get him, and uh, so, as they were oftentimes, and he cries out to God, and he prays, and he says in chapter 20, verse 12, But, O Lord of hosts, you who test the righteous and see the mind and heart. God knows, the prophet says, God knows, he sees the mind and he sees the heart. He sees what is in your mind, he sees what is in your heart. And Jesus is the son of God, he is God, and he also knows the mind and he knows the heart. As a matter of fact, in Luke 6, 8, and one of the things that Jesus was doing with the man who had the withered hand, uh, Jesus looked around and it says, and he knew their thoughts. The son of God knows the heart. Y'all with me this morning? Amen. Jesus, the only begotten son, knows the heart. He's the son of God who knows the heart because he's about the heart. You see, he is seeking to change the heart. He is the only begotten son who seeks to change the hearts of men and women and boys and girls. Because it's in the heart, listen, that transformation takes place. 
Change takes place in the heart. That's where transformation takes place, when the heart is changed. So what about Nicodemus' heart? Well, the Bible here tells us that he came to Jesus by night. Now, the Word of God has words in it for a purpose. So there's a reason here that we find in the Word of God that Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. Now, Nicodemus, as you look at him and you talk to him, if you were to have a conversation with him in that day, you would have thought, hey, this is a pretty good guy. I mean, he's upright, he's outstanding, he, he knows the Scripture. Chances are he knows all the Scripture. He's probably memorized quite a bit of the Scripture. He believes the Scriptures to be uh, God's Word. He's a great guy. He'd be somebody that you would invite over to your house for dinner. You'd probably invite him over to watch the game with you tonight. I mean, you, you like this guy because he's a good guy. He probably votes like you. He probably sounds like you. He probably acts like you. But here's the thing about Nicodemus. He's in spiritual darkness. He's in spiritual darkness. The Bible says he came to Jesus by night. It's an indicator of who he is and what's happening on the inside. Maybe he came by convenience, but maybe it's there because he doesn't want to be seen. He is in spiritual darkness. Darkness as in he cannot see. Darkness as in spiritual darkness in that he cannot understand that he is spiritually blind. You know, John wrote about this in the first part of his gospel in John chapter 1, verse 5, where it talked about that the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And here is Jesus, the light of the world, standing right in front of Nicodemus, but he doesn't understand it because he's what? He's in darkness. But here's the other thing is to understand that that's exactly where we were one day before Jesus Christ got a hold to our hearts as well. As that we once were living in darkness. As a matter of fact, in Ephesians 5 verse 8 says, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord and walk as children of light. You see, what happened here is that Nicodemus, as he comes to Jesus, he, thought, he thinks and he thought that he had all the answers, but in reality, he was in darkness. He was a good guy doing all the right things, but he was in spiritual darkness. But Jesus heads for the heart because he knows the heart. The only begotten Son of God wants to change the heart. And just as he does for some of you maybe here today, that he wants to change the heart. Just as he wants to do for people all over the world to change the heart because that's who he is, that's what he does. Just as he has done in some of us, that he has changed our heart. The only begotten Son heads for the heart. Secondly, we see here that not only does he head for the heart, but he upends the understanding. He upends the understanding. Maybe you don't understand what that word upends. Pastor, I don't use that word often. Help me understand upend. Okay, well, a couple weeks ago, my wife and I went out on a date, and we went to a movie, and we saw the wonderful Mary Poppins Returns. And then about a week later, I took Miss Lydia out, to just the two of us, and we also went to see that same movie. And during the midst of that movie, there is a song that Meryl Streep sings about turning turtle. Turning turtle. So when something's turning turtle, it's upside down. So to upend something means that it has turned turtle, that it is upside down, that it's upset, and it's moved in an opposite direction. And so what we see here that Jesus has done for Nicodemus is that Nicodemus thought that he understood everything, but 
such as that he was born a Jew. He has grounds for being one of God's people. He knows the Old Testament well from the backwards, forwards, and forwards, backwards. He can, mem- he can quote it to you. He knows the law. He knows what he's supposed to do, and he's living that out. And, but Jesus now comes to Jesus. Jesus now comes to Nicodemus, and he tells him something. And what it does is it causes Nicodemus to turn turtle. He upends Nicodemus' understanding. What do you mean by that? Well, look at verse 3. Jesus answered, said to him, most assuredly, meaning truly, truly, or pay attention here, bud. Pay attention because truly, truly, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The idea of the words there that unless something happens shows that there is a requirement that he needs to accomplish that he has not accomplished yet of, of entering or seeing the kingdom of God. And that requirement is to be born again. Now, to be born again, now, we've heard most all of our lives that you need to be born again, that I was born again. I'm a born-again Christian. I'm a born-again evangelical Christian. We've heard the terminology of born again, but what does that mean? Well, it means to have a second birth, but also it could mean being born from above or a combination of both of those, and I tend to think that's a combination of both of those, as we see in the Scripture. And what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is, Nicodemus, you've got all the Scripture memorized, you've got all this righteousness, you've got all this that you think are your good works, but I'm here to tell you most assuredly that unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God here, see, that's what they were looking for. They were looking for this kingdom. He had met all of these requirements and hoping that he would be able to see the kingdom the kingdom of, of the, the downtrodden and the conquered Israel were looking forward to the day when God the king would display his power and establish his kingdom of peace and righteousness. And Nicodemus thought, hey, you know, I'm, I've, I've got the birth certificate. I've got the, I'm the good guy. I keep the law, know the scriptures. I've, I'm going to see the kingdom. I'll be able to enter to the kingdom. But you see, they were looking at it the wrong way. Because Jesus upends their understanding. He turns it turtle. You see, Jesus was not a political leader that they were looking for. They, he was not a military hero that they were looking for. But rather, Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, is the Messiah, the only begotten Son of God, who is bringing peace and the righteousness of God in a way in which they were not expecting. He brings peace with God, and through him they have the righteousness of God. That's not, the, that's not what they were expecting. And so as Jesus shares this with them in verse 4, Nicodemus replies and says, wait, what? What are you talking about? Look what he says in verse 4. How can a man be born when he's old? How, can, a, how can, can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So Nicodemus does not understand. But Jesus knows the heart. He knows the heart of the Pharisee. He knows what's in the heart of man. And he, what he sees in them is that there is darkness and they don't understand. Well, throughout the other passages of Scripture and the Gospels especially, we see that Jesus knows the hearts of the Pharisees and he tells them exactly what they need to do and tells them how they need to be born again. We've seen in other places in Matthew 5.20, he says that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, the scribes and Pharisees thought that they were already righteous, that they were already living it out, that they, they always kept the law. They always were doing everything, strict observances of the law. It was crazy, the things that they were doing. But Jesus says, look, you think you're righteous, but you've got to get beyond that. It's got to be perfect. 
Not only there, but in Matthew 18, verse 3, he also says to them, unless you, and there's a word, unless again, unless you're converted and become as little children, you'll by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. Meaning you have to turn or change and be converted and act and have the faith of a little child to be able to enter into the kingdom. And then in Luke chapter 13, and we'll just look at verse 3 there, that Jesus also says, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. There's that changing, that turning. You see, the only begotten Son of God knows what is needed in the heart of those people who are righteous, who they think they're righteous by their own works, and everybody else. He knows every heart and what is needed in, in you and in me and our neighbors and the people down the street and the people in Richmond and the people in Washington, the people over in Europe, wherever you may think and can think about today, Jesus knows that what they need is to be born again. And this born again is life, and the life that we have in Jesus comes only from him. In verses 5 through 8, Jesus goes further as Nicodemus is saying, wait, I don't, wait, what? And Jesus says again, there it is, most assuredly, truly, truly, pay attention. I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again because the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who's born of the spirit. And so what we see here is that he says, to, he's saying to Nicodemus, and he'll say this in verse 10, that Nicodemus, who is a teacher in the law, who knows the scriptures of the Old Testament, well, Nicodemus, you should know this. You should know this. Why? Because everything in the Old Testament points in one direction to a Messiah, and Jesus is that one. And so he is saying, look, you should know this, Nicodemus. And you should know this, what it means to be born of water and the Spirit. And there's some debate about what that means. You know, what does Jesus mean by saying you need to be born of water and of Spirit? And I think that we'll see that as, as we look at some scriptures here in just a second. But Nicodemus certainly should know that God is the one who brings about new life. Because in the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 32 to 39, says, Then I will give them one heart. This is the Lord speaking. Then I will give them one heart in one way that they may fear me forever for the good of them and their children after them. It's God who's going to do that. So God has spoken this, that he's the one who will give the new heart. It's not about what you're doing, it's what God does. And then, again, the, the water and the spirit aspect, the water, I think, points to a repentance, and the spirit points to God's work. And, he, and Nicodemus should have known that from what the prophet Ezekiel had said in chapter 36 of Ezekiel, verses 24 through 29. And let's look at what that says. Remember... Nicodemus should have known these things. And here's what the Bible says in Ezekiel. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Watch this. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you. This is God speaking. And you shall be clean. That I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and, will keep, and you will keep my judgments and, and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people. I will be your God. I will deliver you from all your uncleanness and I will call for the grain and multiply it and bring no famine upon you. And so what the prophet Ezekiel was saying that Nicodemus should have known that, Je known that Jesus is speaking about here is that you must be born again and that you cannot enter into the kingdom of God unless there is a new birth as you repent and turn to him. 
and it is God who is doing the work. He's the one who says, I will clean you up. I will give you a new heart. I will deliver you. I will do this. I will take the uncleanness from you. It is God who does that work. So it is God, listen now, it is God, Jesus is saying, who calls the people to himself, that he works in ways in which you may not understand, but you can see evidence of his work, just like you can see the wind blowing. You can't understand the wind. I mean, who can understand the wind? I mean, even the weather forecasters, you know, they can tell us where they think it's coming from, but as you're standing in your yard, can you tell me where the wind's coming from? Maybe, but can you tell me where it's going? Can you tell me where it came from? Where did it start? But you know that the wind is there. Why? Because you see evidence of it. Amen? And so that's what we're saying. Jesus is saying here to them. Look, you may not always understand. You may think that you have all the answers to Nicodemus. But it is God who is is the one who is doing the work. You may not understand it just like you don't understand the wind. But you can see evidence that God's working. Amen? So the question then for each of us here today is, what about you? Maybe you're here today and you think that you have all the answers to life. Maybe you think you're good with this God thing, that you do all the right things, you check off the right boxes, you come to church, you come Easter or Christmas, you sing in the choir, you take up the offering, you work in the sound, whatever it is you want to put on your box, as long as I'm doing enough things the right way and I'm good to the people who are my neighbors and I don't uh, fuss at my wife or fuss at my kids, then I'm going to be good. And when time comes for me to enter into heaven, God says, yeah, you are a great guy, you come right on in. And we think we've got all the answers to life, that we have it all together, and we got this heaven thing all figured out because of how good we think we are. But what we need to understand is that the, whole, the only begotten Son of God knows our heart. And what we think we understand, He comes and He turns turtle your understanding. He upends your understanding because He says to each of us, you must be born again. That is he who is doing the work. And as you must be born again, understand that he is about changing your heart and changing your life. Listen, when he comes and gets a hold of your heart, he's not out to reform you or to improve you or to remodel you. No, when he gets a hold of you, he completely transforms you and makes you new. And he is a supernatural act of God. It is him doing the work. So the work of salvation is the work of God and not the works of man. He is the one who has worked in you to call you to himself to be his child and given you the faith to be able to say yes to Jesus Christ. And he's the one who's made you alive. He didn't just make you good. He made you rise from the dead. Amen. I love the little stories, but so often we think that it's all about us. We live in this selfie world. It's what I'm accomplishing and how good I am. I love the story. I can run across the story this week. This week, You've heard about the chicken little story. Well, this is an Arabian chicken little story. It tells about a young Arabian who was traveling along a road riding on a donkey, and he comes upon a small fuzzy object that's right in the middle of the road, lying there on the road. And so he gets off of his donkey to get a closer look to what this fuzzy object is in the road. And he looks, and it's a sparrow that's lying on its back with its scrawny legs thrust skyward. And so at first he thought that this little sparrow was dead, but at a closer investigation it proved that indeed the sparrow was very much alive. And so the young man asked the sparrow if he was all right, and the sparrow said, yep. 
He said, all right, well, then what are you doing on your back with your legs pointed up toward the sky? And the sparrow responded, well, that he had heard a rumor that the sky was falling. And so he was holding his legs up to support the sky. Well, the young Arabian replied, so you surely don't think that you're going to hold it up with those two scrawny legs of yours, do you? And the sparrow, with a very solemn look, said, well, one does the best he can. You know, here's the thing. We are about as able to climb up to heaven on our two scrawny legs about as much as that sparrow is of holding up the sky with his scrawny legs. Amen? You see, it is Almighty God who is the one who moves and draws people and captures the heart and changes the heart and transforms the heart. And because of that, he is the one who does the work. He is the one who is about saving people and changing and transforming hearts and lives. Beloved, this is what we need to do. We need to pray for a fresh wind to blow upon our land. We need to pray for God to have his way in the hearts and lives of people all around us. Listen, we need to be praying for our neighbors. And we've given you a resource with blesseveryhome.com where you can know the names of the people who live closest to you and pray by name those people to come to know Christ. Pray for them. And pray not only for them, but all of our community. And pray for all of our commonwealth. And pray for all of our nation. That the Lord to move in the hearts of people who are all around us. That he would revive his church and awaken the lost to his grace. Beloved, I tell you what, we also need to pray not only for the folks that are around us while we're out and about. But we need to pray for the folks while we're right here as well. Praying one for another, praying for the people who are in the Sunday school classes when you're in Sunday school, praying for the worship team when, when uh, you're in Sunday school and their worship is going on, praying for each other all the time that God would have his way, not only in your life, but in the lives of all the people who set foot onto this campus. Praying for people because he is the only begotten son of God who heads for the heart, who upends the understanding. He changes people. We must be born again. And then thirdly, we see here that not only does he head for the heart, upend the understanding, but he clarifies the cure. That Jesus clarifies the cure. Look at verses 9 and following. When Nicodemus answers Jesus, has just told him about the wind blowing where it wishes, and everyone who's born of the Spirit, Nicodemus says, well, how can these things be? And Jesus answers and says, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you that we speak what we know and testify what we've seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe how you believe, I tell you heavenly things. Nicholas, don't, Nicodemus, don't you know these things? And then in verse 11, we see that Jesus is, is describing that, that he knows these things because he, had, he is witness to it. In my translation, the New King James, it says that it shows here that the we in verse 11, we speak and we know and test what we've seen and receive our witness. All those are capitalized, meaning that the, the writers here felt like that it was the Trinity that Jesus was talking about. That very well could be the case, and I tend to think that's who he's talking about, that he was a witness to these things. The things that he's pointing Nicodemus to go back and look at, Jesus was a witness to because he's the only begotten son of God. He's not just a great teacher that Nicodemus has told him that he was. No, he is God himself. And so the only begotten son now points Nicodemus where he should be familiar in verse 14 as he points him back to the Old Testament to clarify that there's a cure that's needed for his condition. 
He points him to a passage of Scripture. He points him to a, a story that, that certainly Nicodemus, who knows the law and knows the Old Testament, knows everything about it, should remember the story about the children of Israel in the wilderness. Now, you may not know this about the children of Israel when they left Egypt and they were in the wilderness, that they, God watched over them and guided them and protected them and gave them what they needed, and they continued to complain. There's a whole sermon right there, right? They continue to complain. And so what we find here is that there is a story that he tells to Nicodemus to realize, Nicodemus, that here's an issue that you need to understand is your issue. It's a problem. But along with the problem, here's the cure. In verses 14 through 15, look what he says. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Of course, back in verse 13, he talked about the Son of Man who'd come down from heaven. And now he's recognizing, we, need, we recognize, of course, that Jesus himself is this Son of Man. But Jesus is pointing Nicodemus back to Numbers 21. In that passage of Scripture in Numbers 21 is where we find this, where the serpent in the wilderness is being lifted up by Moses. What are you talking about, Pastor? I don't know if I remember that story. Well, I'm glad you asked because I want to tell you. So in Numbers chapter 21... If you start in verse 4 and go through verse 9, we find the children of Israel are in the wilderness. And we find what it says here that then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people, if you can imagine this, the people spoke against God and against Moses. And they said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For, watch this, there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. Now, this worthless bread that they're talking about is the very manna that God provides for them every morning that they may survive. And yet they say, our soul loathes this worthless bread. Well, verse 6. So the Lord sent fiery serpents. I just want to stop right there, amen? I don't like snakes, okay? But we got to go on. We got to move on and see what happens here. But we think, man, they sure deserved it, right? Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. And therefore, the people then came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord, against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. And so Moses prayed for the people. And then the Lord says to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, or a bronze serpent, set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he shall live. And so Moses made the bronze serpent and put it on a pole. And so it was that if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Now Jesus is telling this story and he says to Nicodemus back in verse 11, you know, that you're not understanding, you're not believing our witness. Understand that Jesus saw this take place. As the Son of God. Amen? He witnessed it himself of what took place in the wilderness. And even in the wilderness, he knows what's about to take place and how this points to himself. But I find that it's interesting in this story that we find these things we find rebellion, we find a serpent, 
we find death, the realization of sin and repentance, and we see the grace of God where one has been lifted up on a pole and there is life. And that those who looked to this fiery serpent in faith, believing God, there was a cure rate of 100%. 100% cured as they looked to this pole in faith, believing God. So when they had been bitten by the serpent, if they would just look in faith to the pole, believing God that, that he would save them, then they'd be saved. And so the key word there is to believe. So he's telling Nicodemus that, Nicodemus, you're in that very same predicament, as are all people. That Nicodemus has been bitten by the serpent's sin, as we all have, and the poison penalty is coursing through your veins. But Nicodemus, if you will look to the Son of Man and believe, you will live. Man, you got to love that. Well, Pastor, how does that happen? How is it that we look to the Son of Man and will live? What, what does that mean? What about the Son of Man being lifted up saves us? It's because the only begotten Son of God has taken the poison of our sin for us on the cross of Calvary. Amen? Because of our rebellion, we deserve to die. But by God's grace, Jesus came and he took the poison that we deserve and he went to the cross and he was lifted up. And if we will look to him in repentance and by faith, we will live as we trust him. As we look to him by faith, we will not perish, but have eternal life because he died in our place on the cross. You remember that the purpose of the book of John, as we have said over and over again, is found in chapter 20, verse 31, that says, But these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. It is through believing in Jesus Christ that we have life, not in our works, not in our own righteousness, not in the things, our memorization or whatever it may be, or our affluence or our influence. It is believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only begotten Son of God, what he does here is he clarifies the cure. And there is, I'm telling you, friends, a 100% cure rate when you trust Jesus by faith. Amen? Some will believe, but others will not. But it's the difference between life and death. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God who heads for the heart. He upends the understanding and he clarifies the cure. And then fourthly, we see that he loves the lost. He loves the lost. Now, understand that as Jesus is telling this to Nicodemus, Jesus knows clearly what the cure for Nicodemus's condition is, as well as your cure for the condition that we were in or are in now. Jesus knows that he, as the Son of Man, one day must be lifted up. Jesus himself knows that the cross is coming and he will be on that cross. He will be lifted up. Jesus knows that's about to happen. And so we, the question then would be raised, then why, why, why? Why would you do this? Why? Why? And we come to verse 16 and 17. Why did Jesus do this? Why is his grace offered? Why did he take the poison of sin for me? Why did he take your penalty and my penalty? Verse 16. For God so loved the world. 
that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved. See, Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. Why? Because the world is already under condemnation. We're lost without Jesus. And so the Bible here says that he so loved the world. The word, the word for world there is the word cosmos, used 186 times in the Greek New Testament and always has, is with a sinful connotation, the sinful world. So God loved the sinful world that he gave his only begotten son. It's amazing that God would love the world, but God loves this sinful world. Amen? And how he made the way for us to have eternal life, but he is the way to eternal life. Matter of fact, he is the only way to turn life. And if you're one of those people who gets angry, I was reading this this week, if you're one of those people who gets angry when he hears that there's only one way to God, the question is not why is there only, only one way, but rather why is there even one way? Why is there even one way for us to be able to be reconciled to our Father in heaven? Why is there even one way that we could have access to his presence? Why is there even one way that we could be made right with our creator? The answer is that God loved us enough to make the way. To reveal his grace. To show you who he is and to reconcile you to himself. Because without the son, we perish. And with him, we're saved from perishing. What does that word perishing mean? It means that we're lost. Condemnation is already on us, and it means that we are headed for a place called hell. And by the way, this pastor, this preacher, and all of our pastors here also believe that hell is a real place. That hell is a real place. If it wasn't a real place, then why did Jesus die? But hell is to be in hell forever. It's death forever. Because hell is no joke, and hell is no party, and hell is a real place, and hell is a lake of fire that burns forever, and hell is a place of eternal conscience torment. It's a place of punishment where sin against holy God is eternally paid for by sinners uh, who have rejected Jesus by faith. And maybe you're here today, and you heard this all before, and you say, well, but that's not going to happen to me. You know, I understand all this, but, I, but I, I, it's, it's not going to happen to me. But let me just tell you that if you don't know Jesus personally as your Savior, the Bible says that you are condemned already. You're already condemned. Your sentence of the death penalty is already on you because of the penalty of sin. And we're all sinners. In verses 18 through 20, he goes further and he says these words, He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. This is condemnation, that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. You see, apart from Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son, you are condemned or in darkness if you do not know him by faith. And that's where Nicodemus was. Nicodemus was a great guy. He memorized scripture. He was a leader in the, of the religious people, but he was lost. He was lost. And he was in darkness. And what we're finding here in this passage of scripture is that nothing terrifies those in darkness more, more than the appearance of light. Because light represents exposure and humiliation. 
was reading this week and heard this. He said, have you ever heard about the man who sent a letter to 25 men in his town? And all it said was about seven words. And these are the seven words. All has been exposed. Flee at once. He just picked 25 random men, sent it out. All has been exposed. Flee at once. You know what happened? All 25 men left town. All 25 left town. And let me ask you a question. What would you do if you got that letter? All has been exposed. Flee at once. Let me ask you another question. What if you heard that message from the Lord? All I know, Jesus would say, I know. All has been exposed. Man. Well, here's what you need to understand. That is what he's saying. That is exactly what he's saying. Jesus says, I know. I know your heart. And you're exposed. And if you don't know me as the Lord and Savior of your life, it will be revealed. There will be a time of judgment. And so here's the truth. That no matter who you are, you can never hide from God. That he knows the heart and he knows our condition, but he also has the cure. Praise God. Amen. He has the cure because he loves us. And the cure is for you to repent and believe in Jesus who takes our sin and takes our guilt and takes our penalty and takes our shame and he gives us life, real life. He's the only begotten son who heads for the heart, who upends our understanding, who clarifies the cure and who loves the lost. And then finally, fifth, fifth point is that he acknowledges the alive. Verse 21, Jesus says, but he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. So here's what we need to know is that our hearts by nature do not want to be changed. The fleshly nature about us do not want to be changed. And so that being the case, they need to be, our hearts need to be altered by the Holy Spirit. So our flesh naturally wants to flee from his presence. Our flesh naturally does not have any affection for Christ. We say, eh, I'll take my chances. Yeah, he's probably a good guy, great teacher, but you know what? I don't really need him. I think I'm good enough to be able to get into heaven. But here's what you need to understand, that if he, has, if he has worked in your life, and if you have trusted in Jesus by faith, then you are no longer the same. Is that you have, your heart has been cha- transformed. Your heart has been changed. Your hearts have been swept clean. Your sins have been washed away. Your new creations, and you are now alive in Christ. And it's all because, not of what you have done, but what the Holy Spirit has done in you. The only begotten Son of God has given you His life for you on Calvary's cross. When we trust Him by faith, we are then alive in Him. I love what R.C. Sproul says in his commentary about this passage of Scripture. He says, so therefore, if you have any affection for Christ at all, then it is because 
God the Holy Spirit in his sweetness and in his power and in his mercy and in his grace has been, watch this now, he has been to the cemetery of your soul and has raised you from the dead. That's the only reason why you have any love for Christ because of what Jesus has done in you already. What the Holy Spirit has done in your life in that he's been to the cemetery of your soul and raised you to life. And that's good, amen? That's what God has done in you. You are now alive to the things of Christ and you rejoice in the kingdom into which he has brought you. Hallelujah for the cure, amen? Hey, what, you know, as you come to this, come to the end of the, our passage of scripture today, so Nicodemus sort of just falls off the face of the page, doesn't he? Boy, he, he just disappears. He, the last time we hear from him is in verse 9 when he says, how can these things be? And then Jesus answers the question. We come to the end of 21 and there's nothing. There's no Nicodemus. He disappears. Well, we do see him later in the Gospel of John in chapter 7 where there's a discussion among some of the religious leaders and they're speaking against Jesus and Nicodemus sort of speaks up and he says, hey, let's just listen to him first. And so we see that about him. But then we come to the end of the Gospel of John in John chapter 19 and verses 38 through 40 when Jesus has been crucified. He's on the cross. He's now dead. And we come to verse 38 and we find these words. After this, remember Jesus is hanging there lifeless on the cross. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, he asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. And so he came and he took the body of Jesus. Verse 39. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. And then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices as the custom of the Jews is to bury. You know, don't you find it interesting that Nicodemus, when he first has this conversation with Jesus, he doesn't get saved. He doesn't turn his heart over to Jesus with that first encounter even though it is with the light himself. The one who is shining in the midst of the darkness, that Nicodemus doesn't come to the light right then, that he can't see, can't understand. But what we can understand as we look at this last passage of Scripture in verse chapter 19, because he certainly was taking a huge chance and did not bother him to go and take the body of Jesus, that now Nicodemus is a disciple of Jesus. So somewhere along the way, his heart was captured by Jesus Christ. His heart was captured by the Lord. And you know what that tells me? That tells me that there is hope for those people that we are burdened for who do not know Jesus yet. Amen? We're just a part of the journey And we're praying that along the way, Jesus will capture their hearts. Amen? Because he's the only begotten son of God. He loves the lost. He he has the cure. He's going after the heart. He does the work and he gives the understanding. You know, working on this message this week, there's a lot of things that was trying to clutter up 
uh, my thoughts, probably yours too, as you prepared for this week. There's a lot of things that have been in the news on social media. There's been a lot of things that we've seen, like the, the news coming about the legislation in New York that was signed into law back a week or so ago, how they, people could have an abortion up until the end of the 40 weeks of pregnancy and how that just causes us to be sick to our stomachs. And then thinking that, well, that's just New York, then hearing in our own state, the own, our own Commonwealth of Virginia, we were, I was disgusted uh, to hear the legislation in Virginia that would do the very same thing introduced by one of our delegates that I felt was vile and sickening from also the governor's comments uh, that alluded that even after the baby is born, that a doctor and the parents then could make a decision, which is the killing of innocent life. And where I reel at that and am infuriated by that, and my heart struggles with that, I have to be reminded of this truth. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. Because what we need to always remember is that Jesus is after the hearts of people. And that's what transforms people, is when Jesus changes the heart. Because, listen, even if our legislation is strongly protecting the vulnerable among us, even if the Supreme Court were to overturn Roe v. Wade, there would still be people who would be working to find ways to provide a means to murder those innocent children. So I'm here to tell you that the only thing that will change people is a man by the name of Jesus. The only thing that's going to change the hearts of people is not going to be a legislation or a court order. It's going to be when Jesus gets a hold of their heart. Do you remember the story of Norma McCorvey? You might know her rather as Jane Roe. It's because of her case that abortion was made legal in our country. She was in Texas wanting to have an abortion, but it was illegal unless the mother's life was in danger. And so what happened is she was referred to a couple of feminist lawyers wanting to challenge those laws in Texas that was restricting abortion. But by the time it made its way to the Supreme Court and the Texas law was ruled unconstitutional, she had already had her baby and had given the baby up for adoption. In the 1980s, she began volunteering at an abortion clinic and speaking out in favor of the right to have an abortion. But in 1995, something happened. Operation Rescue set up a shop right beside the clinic where she was working. And even though there were definitely protests out in front of the clinic, the man who was in charge of Operation Rescue there at that clinic was a man by the name of Philip Benham. And Philip Benham was simply nice to Jane Roe. And no doubt he prayed for Jane Roe. And ultimately he had the opportunity on several occasions to point Jane Roe to Jesus. And ultimately, Jesus captured the heart of Norma McCorvey. And she gave her heart to Jesus. And she was changed. So what are you saying, Pastor? Does that mean that we shouldn't write to our legislators or write to our governor or vote in elections on the basis of abortion? That's not, that's not what I'm saying at all. As a matter of fact, that you, you should do that. 
You must write your legislators. You must write the governor. And you must vote. And you must not only do that, but you must also support crisis pregnancy centers and, and adoption agencies. But here is what you must remember that you must always do. Is to realize that Jesus died for the Norma McCorvey's. That Jesus died for the Nicodemuses. That Jesus died for the immoral women at the well. And pray for them and point them to Jesus because he is the only one who will change their hearts. Amen? So the question is, has he changed yours? Has he changed your heart? Has he cured you of the poison of sin because he loves you? Are you alive in him? Two things to do and we're done. And they're quick, I promise. Number one is simply come to Christ. If you're not sure, if you're not sure you belong to Jesus, just come to him. Come to him, repentance and faith. Come to him, repent and believe. Look to the cross, look to Jesus. Come to Christ. Turning from sin, turning to Jesus, believing with all your heart, he is the son of God who died for you, rose again bodily from the grave, making him the Lord of your life. Come to Christ. Secondly, persist in prayer. Persist in prayer. Don't give up on anybody. There are people that you know around you at work, in your home, in your family, wherever they may be, where you frequent, where you go to school, that don't know Jesus. Hey, persist in prayer. Keep praying for them, care for them, and share the gospel with them. Amen? Come to Christ. Persist in prayer. Why? Because he knows the heart. He will upend the understanding. He clarifies the cure. He loves the lost and he acknowledges the alive. Let's turn to him all the time. Let's pray. Father, may you have your way in our hearts and our lives today. Lord, as we come to this time of invitation, we yield our lives to you. Lord, we are reminded of your grace. We're reminded of how much you love us. We're reminded, Lord, that we once were in darkness and yet you showed the light to us. You gave us hope. You, by your grace, you saved us and made us new. Lord, I pray that if there are those here today who've never trusted you by faith, that you're calling them to yourself even now and they'll respond by saying yes to you. Lord, for those of us who already know you by faith and know you as Savior and Lord of our lives, Lord, help us to live that out. Praying for those who are lost around us. Praying for our commonwealth. Praying for our nation. Lord, that the church would be the church and be the light and the salt in this world. But also, Lord, caring for people and sharing the gospel, pointing them to Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to magnify and exalt you above all. It's not about us. It's all about you. Only Jesus. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. So we come to our invitation. If you